Hey now, this is um, this is kind of a hodgepodge room I'm putting together here. Uh, I'm going to talk a little while, and then the second part of this is the video Roma that I made for subscribers to the podcast this month. I recorded it a few days ago. I do that every month, um, and uh, so if you want to see me saying these things, don't know why that would matter really, but uh, that's a special perk for people who support the podcast on my website. So if you want to uh, tune into these video romas, like the one that you're going to hear in a little while, um, and you want to see it visually, you can go to my website, uh, chrisryanphd.com, that chrisryan.com, or tangentiallyspeaking.com, same site, three different URLs, and you can sign up there. Um, Before I get into that, though, I wanted to comment on a few things that have happened in the last few days and also throw in a little music. Um, so, uh, let's see what's happened. I went down, I drove down to Austin, see some friends down there. I had a buddy. I have a buddy, um, whose ex-partner died unexpectedly a few weeks ago and he wanted to, um, to go down for her memorial, and uh, I thought that would be an opportunity for a, a good road trip. So the two of us took Scarlett Jovanson, drove down to uh, Austin. I have some friends in Austin that I hung out with while he was, um, you know, dealing with that situation, and um, and then we uh, road tripped back up. So that was that was interesting. It was good to get out on the road again with Scarlett. Um, good to have a navigator. He's a funny dude. My buddy, he, uh, he would sort of Google towns as we went through them and read about the history of the town. Most of them, there was no history at all. The history, I remember one place, the history amounted to the fact that a tornado had touched down there 15 years ago and fucked up a bunch of uh, mobile homes. That was about it. That's what that place is famous for. I think that was post. Was that post Texas or was that? No, I think that was the place in New Mexico where we stopped for a horrible barbecue. Um, Anyway, we came back. We're coming back through, hit a jackpot. There's a town named Trinity, Colorado. It's just over the border from New Mexico. Little town. I mean, a couple thousand people. And uh fuck, the history was crazy. It was it was known for a while as the sex change capital of the world because there was a surgeon there and someone asked him to do a sex change and he agreed to do it. He sort of like, you know, looked it up at a book and figured out how to do it and he did it. And next thing you know, he people are flying in from all over the world to have this surgeon do their sex change operations. Uh bizarre. Um, then, uh, what else? Oh, there was this, um, massive strike, uh, coal miners struck the Ludlow strike, which I had read about. It's a pivotal moment in American, uh, labor history. Um, one of the, I think it was the early 20th century, 19, 1910, 1915, somewhere in there. Um, it, it basically was 
one of the major battles in the fight for the eight-hour workday and improved working conditions for miners who were dying in explosions because the motherfuckers who owned the mine couldn't be bothered to pump out the methane gas. So, eh, you lose some miners every once in a while. It's cheaper than uh, pumping out the gas, you know. That's how business works, folks. You know, we we who grew up in in the world of 40-hour work weeks and weekends and no kids getting their hands chopped off in industrial machinery and, um, you know, workplace, workman's compensation claims and uh, insurance and all this stuff, we sort of assume naturally that, well, you know, that's sort of, uh, you know, business wants to take care of their workers to some extent. That's not true. You are disposable. Business will not give you anything that it's not forced to give you. Um, I highly recommend that you look into the history of labor relations. There was no 40-hour work week. And when people started agitating for that, the companies called in private security firms to shoot them dead, the Pinkertons. Uh, or the government set in the National Guard to shoot them dead. How dare you demand the right to work in a place that doesn't explode, doesn't poison you, uh, pays you a living wage? These things are never given, right? Power never surrenders power without a fight. Um, and it's sad to see how the working class in the United States has been hoodwinked into voting against their own interests so often, uh, more and more in the last 40, 50 years since Reagan figured out, Reagan and his boys figured out the formula to get working people uh, divided people without a lot of capital divide them against each other by using social issues like abortion and gay rights and civil rights and these things, uh, you know, get the scared, poor white people to turn against the other people and uh, you can keep them down. That's the way we do it. Anyway, uh, I wanted to read you something from uh, an essay that I just read recently that's really interesting. I listened to a podcast. Um, the It's Emergence Magazine has a podcast where some of the people who write essays in the magazine will read those essays. And I listened to the one um, by David Abrams. And I had heard of David Abrams. I, I think I even bought or somebody gave me his book, The Spell of the Sensuous, because I can remember it like being around, but I never, I never read it. And I don't know why. Um, but I, I knew more or less what it was about. And, um, so, you know, he was present in my consciousness in some way. Um, but then I, I listened to him read this essay that, uh, I think is a sort of a modern, uh, recapitulation of some of the arguments that he makes in that book. And it was stunning. It was fabulous. And it was it was the right place and time. I was out walking here in Creston. I was walking in the desert and the sun was going down. The light was beautiful. The air was clean. I looked out over this amazing valley and I could see 
snow falling in one area and rain in another area and the sun cutting through the clouds and is just so much going on around me and I felt very embedded in in that uh, natural situation and and his essay was just fabulous it was about it's about how we as a species seem to be using technology to try to recreate a relationship with the non-human world that we lost um, and we lost it through written language and then just our, our sort of um, alienation from the natural world and, and he he's very much about how um, earlier versions of humans um, saw the world as as alive, and and it spoke to them, and and there was this dialogue going on, and then we lost that, and the world became this dead place, a place of to be exploited and to dump our garbage into, and um, you know, just a, a material. Uh, non-animated space and uh, we were the only truly living things and so all voices were human voices the we no longer heard the voices of the rocks and the rivers and the clouds Um, and now here we are trying to imbue our technology with voices our refrigerators talk to us Uh, these people i was visiting in uh in austin I've never been with people who talk to their technology so much. It was Alexa, turn on the lights. Alexa, turn off the lights. Alexa, turn up the music. Alexa, you know, pick some other music. Alexa, and and, and there, there's this kind of like edge of annoyance in the way because Alexa wasn't like doing shit the way she was supposed to. Um, just so strange how we're, you know, it's like, it's like lonely people have lots of pets, you know, it's that kind of thing. It's like, okay, we've, we've lost the primary relationship with the world and now we're recreating this weird, diluted version of that with machines. Um, anyway, I thought I would read from an interview that he, he gave to Emergence magazines, just a couple paragraphs, but It'll give you a sense of of what he's about. David Abrams, he says, One of the most common misreadings of my work and my research has been to say, Oh, Abram, not Abrams, Abram. Abram is suggesting that writing is bad and that the alphabet is the cause of all our problems. Unquote. This is a terrible misreading because I'm a writer and I love the written word and I love to read and I'm deeply given to the exquisite power of the written word to open wonders. I'm not at all claiming, and this is quite important, I'm not at all suggesting that writing is bad, but rather that writing is magic and that the alphabet is a very potent form of magic, a very concentrated form of animism. For our indigenous ancestors, one could be wandering through the terrain and have one's attention snagged by a boulder with patches of crinkly black and red lichens spreading on the surface, and you would focus your eyes on a patch of lichen and abruptly hear the rock speaking to you. 
Well, that's not so different from us waking up in the morning, walking into the kitchen, opening up the paper, and focusing our eyes on a few bits of ink on the page, and suddenly we hear voices, and we see visions of events happening in the White House or in Iraq. We focus our eyes on these ostensibly inanimate bits of ink on the page, and we hear voices, conversations unfolding between people on the far side of the world. This is animism, folks. It's an intensely concentrated form of animism, but it's animism nonetheless, as outrageous as a talking stone. We just do it with our own scratches and scripts. Our ancestors were doing the same thing with bent twigs, tree forms, leaves, cloud shapes, animal tracks. Everything in the surrounding terrain was speaking to them. But this new, very concentrated form of animism only speaks with a human voice. And the words that we experience as we read are human words. Abram goes on. So the alphabet closes us into a space of exclusively human meaning and verbiage, while the wider, more-than-human terrain doesn't seem to speak at all anymore. And in that sense, this new, very concentrated form of magic that we call the alphabet makes possible the forgetting of the lives and perspectives of all the other animals, of the plants, of the mountains and rivers. It doesn't force us to forget these other beings, but it makes possible that we begin to neglect them. So I'm not saying writing is bad. I'm saying writing is a magic. And only when we recognize it as such can we use it responsibly. If we don't recognize writing as a very potent magic, that is, as something that has much more than rational effects upon our experience, if we don't recognize it as magic, we tend to fall under its spell. The word spell has that double meaning, both to cast a magic within the world and also simply to arrange the letters. But these two meanings were once one and the same, because to learn to read with this new magic was to cast a kind of spell upon our senses. Isn't that fucking awesome? That's so interesting to me. I never thought of it that way. Anyway, um, that's from an interview with David Abram in... Emergence Magazine, if you want to read the rest of that and get into his work a little bit. You can also read the essay that he uh, read, or you can listen to him read it. I'm going to play a song here because I know I know a bunch of people, and I don't know if it's springtime or it's the beginning of the end of the pandemic, we hope. I'm not sure what it is, but I know several people who are going through the pain of um, a relationship coming to a close. And uh, that is one of life's worst pains. And um, 
certainly the worst pain that I have experienced worse than death uh, in some ways, because this person that you love is suffering and you can't help them. And you are forced in some ways to be cruel. You're the instrument of their suffering. You're the instrument of the suffering of this person that you've grown close to. And it's uh, fucking horrible. There's no way around it. Um, but it is necessary. And, and when a relationship dies, or they never die, do they? They change. They change into something else. And when we don't recognize that, uh, then it's impossible to move on. It's impossible to uh, to heal. And so the song is called The End. It's by Stereo MCs. I hope you dig it. As the flies of romance start to fade In the shade of the shadows of the mess we made I try to laugh, but I'm all choked up Cause there ain't nothing funny about breaking up I see a cry, but it don't hurt no more Cause I don't see what we're fighting for And I'm sad, cause I know I've been bad A world full of trouble, but I just end up getting mad But I ain't lost belief I just can't find the peace Maybe you want us who cease to be You make it so plain, it ain't no mystery just wanna hang with your own group of friends Cause you just can't hide from the fact that this is the end So hear what I say, hear what I say Say I gotta change Now we stand on a bridge Of a troubled water You wanna jump But I know the way slaughter I've been through it before You see So I recognise That you're testing me But now school's over We ain't rolling in the cover You can pull the wool over Your own as if you wanna There's nothing left But a pause A loose end I'm waiting for a sign That you ain't ever gonna send I'm sick and tired Of being fired up Just to defend Well This is the end
Hear what I say, hear what I say. Sometimes that's how I feel when I record a podcast. Like I'm just saying, hear what I say, listen to me, listen to me. There's no reason you should listen to me uh, unless you enjoy it, unless you get some value out of it. I'm not a fucking expert on anything. Uh, which brings me to a recent controversy with uh, Joe Rogan saying some shit about vaccines that got him on the front page of various newspapers and, uh, I don't know, brought a bunch of attention to Spotify, which I guess is what they hired him to do. Um, I don't know if you follow me on Twitter, you might have seen some of the tweets that I, I, uh, where I commented on this. And it's interesting because people totally, a lot of people misunderstood what I was saying. Um, you know, I said something like, consider the source, right? Joe Rogan's a fucking podcaster. He knows as much about medicine as your doctor knows about MMA or podcasting. And that wasn't a diss on Joe. Like some people are like, oh, Chris, you know, giving Joe shit. Like I'm not giving Joe shit. I'm saying Joe is Joe. Joe's a guy, fucking podcaster. He knows a lot about fighting. Knows a lot about podcasting. Knows a lot about comedy. Um, And he talks about a lot of shit he doesn't know much about, as do I, as does everyone with a fucking podcast uh everyone with a conversation right we're all throwing our opinions around and the point is not to police what people say the point is to learn to listen and to be discerning and uh you know critical thinking something i talk about a lot on this podcast and one of the first steps in the process of thinking critically is to consider the source So, uh, you know, people send me these fucking YouTube videos of some dude in Holland who's saying, you know, vaccines are going to promote, you know, the emergence of all these things. It's like, look, everybody's got a fucking opinion. Everybody has an opinion on these things. And when you're sending me some, some guy in Holland who is a veterinarian and what he's saying goes against the general consensus of the medical community. I don't have time for that because there are a thousand of those dudes. There are a thousand people seeking attention by having contrarian opinions about this thing that everyone's urgently interested in right now. And yet, so first consider the source. Who is this person? What's their expertise? What's their track record? Second, what's their motivation? Are they answering a question in an interview because they're an expert in their field? Or are they throwing up a YouTube video trying to get a bunch of attention because they can make money from it or they just want the attention? Um. So consider the source, consider the motivation. So when Joe Rogan says, I don't think young people should get vaccines, that's fucking Joe Rogan. I don't care how much you love him as a person. I don't care how much money he makes. I don't care how big his audience is. He's just Joe. He's just a dude. His opinion is on that particular issue is no more valid than my next door neighbor. And um, and that's not a diss on Joe. That's just saying, learn how to listen, people. 
and stop telling stop telling other people not to talk they can talk they can have their opinions you just decide whether or not you're going to take that opinion seriously um so that's that's my point on that uh the one other thing i wanted to talk about and this kind of relates to the song this is the end is somebody sent me an email saying hey i'd love you to uh comment on uh, giving advice to friends, like how do you negotiate that? And um, it's not something that I address in the the Roma that you're going to hear in a few minutes. So I thought I would just address that before I say goodbye here. Um, because it is relevant. And, um, and I, I have a friendship that kind of has just ended uh, and I don't know, it wasn't really a friendship. It was sort of an acquaintance that may have been on the track to becoming a friendship. And it hit a wall because um, what happened was that this um, this dude that, that I've known for a while, and, and he's a good dude. He's, there's None of what I'm about to say is um, any kind of criticism of him necessarily. It's, it's just that... The, there are incompatibilities that come up and and in this case this guy um he's a really good dude and um he's having some serious health problems and as i've gotten to know him better um he he told me about some things that had happened in his past and um some things that are happening in his present that generate a lot of stress um, for him. And it's one of these things where like we had one conversation where he really opened up about this stuff. And then anytime that I would refer to it subsequently, he just sort of ignored it and, and it, you know, we didn't talk about it again and then uh, the last time I saw him, I sort of made a point of like, hey, you know, maybe, you know, you need to think about this. You need to confront this. And um, and the only reason I did that is, A, I, th- I felt like our friendship was deepening and, and you know, we're at the point where uh, I start caring enough about this person that seeing um, – the negative effects on his health and feeling as I did that they were related to his unwillingness to really look at some of this stuff and also feeling like he opened up and shared those things because he on some level feels that it is time to deal with this stuff. Anyway, uh, he got really pissed off and uh, basically told me to, butt out and stop diagnosing him and stop fucking um raising these these issues um so for me that's a deal breaker because uh when i see someone that i care about and they're hurting themselves um i have the right and responsibility i feel to raise those issues. And if that person says, no, you don't have the right to raise those issues, 
I'm not going to discuss those issues. I'm not going to look at that. Then we got a problem. Uh, we don't have a friendship. And um, so, you know, the question of giving advice to friends. Now, certainly, you know, the rule of thumb is you don't give advice that isn't asked for. And I think that's a generally a good rule. But when we look at this issue, we tend to look at the the person on the receiving end and what their needs and rights are. And we say, well, they have the right not to hear your advice. And that's true. Um, unless you see a situation developing where you feel in order to be true to yourself, you need to say something. So, for example, if I have a friend who is drinking to the point where I think they're endangering themselves and other people, I have the responsibility to say something. I, it doesn't even have anything to do with them, really. It's about me and being true to myself. Um, if I had a friend who mistreated their dog... I have to say something. I can't have a friendship with somebody who's mistreating an animal or a child or their partner. And, you know, I, I think my sense of friendship is that we need to feel free to be honest with each other. And I need each of us needs to be free to be ourselves in the presence of the other. So I'm the kind of person who, if I see my friend hurting himself or hurting someone else, I'm the kind of person who needs to say something. That doesn't mean this person has to follow my dictates or that, you know, they need to do whatever, you know, like I'm not telling people how to eat or how to dress or, or how to live. But if it's like, dude, you know, you have never really considered how these aspects of your childhood have hurt you. And now you're having severe health problems. Like, uh, you got to look at that. You got to think about that. You got to talk to somebody about that. And if you react with hostility to that suggestion, then I don't know how we can have a friendship. And we can't. We can't have a friendship. Um, so that's the problem with, uh, giving people your opinion. Um, generally I wouldn't do it unless they ask for it, unless, uh, you see them hurting themselves or hurting someone else. And then it becomes about who are you and what can you live with? All right. So that's enough about that. Uh, I'm going to play you into this next section with uh, another song. And this relates to some of the stuff I've been talking about recently <clears throat> about, um, and I guess relates directly to what I've just been talking about, which is different, recognizing different types of relationships for what they are and not trying to um, force a size 11 foot into a size 8 shoe. Uh, let things be what they are, recognize them for what they are, enjoy them for what they are. And there is a delicate art that um, 
I had to learn. It took me a long time to learn it, to recognize a relationship for what it is and just let it be that. And not assume that every sexual relationship, for example, um, needs to migrate into partnership. That's unnecessary and in most cases inappropriate. And all it does is makes a fucking mess of what could have been a good friendship. Uh, and I'm still learning these things. I'm still learning to recognize. I, I was just talking with a friend recently about looking back at some of the relationships I had in the past and understanding that that relationship was fine. It would have been fine if I had recognized it as what it was and not automatically assumed that it was going to be something else, uh, which it never was going to be. Um, I don't know if that makes sense or if that's too many abstractions strung together. Anyway, this song is called Daniela. And every time I hear it, I think about a woman named Daniela that I knew years ago. And um, she was a friend and uh, a really nice person. And we had an erotic connection, uh, but not really much else. We didn't hang out with each other's friends. She wasn't my girlfriend. I wasn't her boyfriend. But we were part of each other's lives for probably 10 years. Um, and, uh, and she was awesome. And I have nothing but really positive memories of her. And uh, I hope that she has very positive memories of me as well. And uh, so I know she doesn't listen to this podcast because she doesn't speak English. But if anyone out there knows who I'm talking about, uh, say hi to Daniela for me. This is the John Butler Trio, Daniela, and then you'll hear the uh, audio of the video Roma that I just did. Thanks for listening, everybody. This is totally 100% commercial free.
Everybody, what's happening? This is the uh, video Roma for subscribers to the podcast uh, for April. Today's April 28th. Running behind, as I always seem to be with these things. But anyway, it's still April. So I'm coming in just under the wire. I guess I will... I'll release the audio of this, so if you're just a regular old non-paying cheapskate uh, and or poor uh, listener, you will hear the audio. If you want to see my pink face <laughs> and today's black t-shirt, you can go to tangentiallyspeaking.com and become a supporter of the podcast and see the video version of this there. Uh, I don't know. It's just one of several bonus things. Some people like to see the person who's talking. So, hey, how you doing out there? Um, but, uh, yeah. So if you become a subscriber to the podcast or a supporter of the podcast, you get 
this every month. You also get, uh, you can have free downloads of the eBooks, Tangentially Reading, uh, Tangentially Talking Sex, and Tangentially Talking Drugs are the three that have been done so far. Um, and uh, yeah, if you subscribe for a few months, depending on what level, like if you've thrown in some cash and it's more than a book or a t-shirt would cost, including shipping to wherever you are, let me know and uh, I'll have mom send you one or both of those things or beer koozies or stickers or whatever the hell you want. Um, so on with today's video Roma. Uh, this is from Shannon. Hi, Chris. What would you say to someone who can't find their path calling meaning? I'm 28 years old and I've had more than 30 jobs. Damn, girl. My whole life I've floated around trying different things, but eventually I end up feeling uninspired and start resenting the fact that I feel like I'm wasting my life and I quit. All to start the cycle again in a different role. I'm hyper aware of the fact that life is short and can end at any moment. And that, in a way, cripples my ability to sacrifice the current moment for delayed gratification. I'm not depressed or mentally unwell, I don't think, but I feel confused and lost about how to find something that brings enough meaning to my life that I can feel happy to spend my time doing it. I'm not really asking for career advice. advice. I'm more asking how to probe and filter the world for something that I can find meaning in. That is such an intelligent question, Shannon. Thank you for that. Um, my response, I guess, would center around the fact that um, you're 28, and I think what you're doing is really smart. Uh, you're working with the process of elimination. The thing is, it's really hard to know what's right for you without knowing what's wrong for you. And um, I think it's very useful as a young person to have a lot of different experiences with lots of different types of jobs um, so that later in life, when you do settle on something, you're not romanticizing uh, those jobs. You know, you're not saying, oh, I could have been, you know, great in sales or something. If you've actually had a sales job and you're like, fuck, this sucks. I don't want to do this the rest of my life. So I think having had those sorts of jobs is, is a very important part of the process of finding what does work for you. Um, so my first response is like hey good for you you're doing it right don't don't beat yourself up because you haven't found it yet you're only 28 and uh i know being 28 you don't feel very young um but you are trust me you are i am more than twice your age and I can tell you that 28 is young. 28 is when you want to be making mistakes. It's when you want to be going down dead ends and turn around and go back. Um, that's the time for that. You don't want to be doing that 
15, 20 years from now because it matters a lot more then. It's it's a lot more debilitating and weakening and it's harder to get back up and start over again. But when you're 28, you still got lots of, you know, you got years to start over. So that's my first thing. Like, you're doing great. Um, I'm really glad that I had a bunch of shitty jobs in my 20s, teens and 20s. I mean, I pumped gas in three different gas stations. Uh, I was like sort of a mechanics helper. You know, I did oil changes and tires and flat tires and, you know, stuff like that. Um, I did, uh, let's see, I worked in a kennel cleaning dog shit and dealing with dogs. Um, I sold Cutco knives for a while. Uh, I worked in a Burger King. I worked in a Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, I feel like I worked in a grocery store somewhere, but mm, I don't know if that's true. Uh, what else? I, I worked in Alaska on the salmon line. I worked on that boat uh, in Alaska. I, I Yeah, and then later I did the real estate thing. Uh, then lots of different teaching gigs. Um, I've had a lot of jobs, a lot, a lot of all over the place, and I'm really glad. Um, it not only is educational in terms of figuring out what you want to do by eliminating the things you don't want to do, I think it's also really educational in terms of giving you a sense of how the world works and what other people are doing, what their lives are like, and... Um, you know, educating yourself about sectors of the world that you might not really have any insight into otherwise. So, you know, you might get a job, uh, you know, in a port and you learn about shipping and ships and containers and cranes and, you know, whatever. Whatever it is, it's it's great in your 20s and even into your 30s to be educating yourself. And then the decisions the sort of lasting decisions will come later and you'll make better decisions for having had this uh, diversity of experience. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is um, that any of these decisions uh, require self-knowledge. So whatever you can do to know yourself better is going to be important whether that's meditation or um, reading a lot or doing psychotherapy or um, in some for some people psychedelics can be very useful in this um, lucid dreaming uh, keep a journal you know get accustomed to being intimate with your deepest self and bringing that sort of shadowy part of yourself, that almost dream-like, imagistic, nonverbal, all those parts of yourself, get used to bringing them up to the surface and articulating um, as best you can what's going on in the depths. Um, Because, you know... What you're talking about is a relationship. It's a relationship between you and this 
activity that you're choosing, whether it's an art or a business or, a, you know, a, a service that you provide. <clears throat> and in order to have the healthiest relationship, you have to understand both sides of it. So you, you want to understand the the activity, but you also need to understand yourself. So you might have the idea that like, um, you know, I'm a people person and I love working with people and I, I'm super social, mm, but that might not be true. You might investigate yourself and get to know yourself better and realize like, actually, I really like being alone. I like, I don't like having a boss. I'm not good at taking direction. I get really frustrated um, when I see someone who is incompetent in, from my perspective, who's like telling me what to do. Like, I can't handle that. I, stay, I hate it. You got to know that about yourself. Um, so the sooner you can know these, know yourself to this depth, um, the less time you're going to waste creating a bad relationship between yourself and, and this activity that you're going to be doing. Also, I wouldn't think, you know, I wouldn't assume that you're going to find one thing that you're going to do for the rest of your life and that's going to satisfy you forever and ever. Like, assume that you are going to go through changes. So something might make you happy for the next five or six years, and then you'll want to change into something else. And there's no shame in that. That's fantastic. The last thing I would say is there's a line that was very comforting for me when I read it about when I was about your age, which I refer to, I talked about in some podcasts that I've, re I've recorded recently. Um, it's a line from Carlos Castaneda. I think it's Journey to Ishlan. It might be the first book. I, I don't remember which book it is. But he's talking to this shaman. Um, and the shaman basically says to him, you know, he's, he's asking him this question, like, what should I do with my life? What can I, um, you know, what's the correct path for me? And... The shaman says, look, and I'm paraphrasing here, of course, but the shaman says, look, whatever path you choose is going to be the same. It's going to lead to the same place that all the other paths lead, which is nowhere, right? We all die. You're not on a road to some heavenly destination. We're all on the road to nowhere. We don't know where we're going. And... So what he says is, you know, basically, I think the first thing he's saying is lower your expectations, right? We're all going nowhere. All paths lead to nowhere. So there's the first thing. But then he says, the important thing is to choose a path with heart. Un sendero con corazón. Because if you choose a path with heart, It'll be easy for you. The path will open up before you. If you stray from a path with heart and you find yourself on a path that does not have heart, you'll curse your life. I remember that phrase. He says, you will curse your life. And you'll be very deeply unhappy. So I guess what he's saying is it's, it's not about the path. It's about your relationship with the path. Are you... Is this 
important to you? Is this meaningful to you? Is this true to you? That's the thing. Follow the light of truth in your life. And don't worry if it takes you off this path, right? Trust it. Because truth, it's almost like truth is like a, like uh, the North Star or something that you can navigate by. And your path might turn, veer off to the right. This path that you've been on for a few years veers off over there. But your truth is to the left and like follow the truth. Forget the path. Make your own path. Um, and then you'll be happy wherever it leads you. At least that's what I think. Because you... You can't possibly know where you're going. That's the other thing. Like young people are like trying to plot out their lives, but they don't. I didn't. No one understands that life is going to be this constant process of make a choice, make a choice, make a choice. And each choice leads to other choices. Each door you open leads into a room with three other doors. And then you pick one of those doors and it's another room with three other doors. And you can't see beyond the room you're in. You can't see down the road five doors later. Um, and so you just do the best you can in each moment. And that's why that line from Castaneda was so meaningful for me because it he was basically saying, you don't need to worry about all the decisions. All you need to worry about is how you feel in the moment. Is this true for me? Is this, is this meaningful and, and enriching? And what I read in your, your message, Shannon, is that you're very demanding about how you spend your time. And that's fucking great. That's awesome. Um, and I don't think you should feel apologetic about that. I think that you're on the right, you're on the right path. And you're saying, Hey, when things stop working for me, when things stop feeling, when I feel like I'm selling my life for 20 bucks an hour, I start to feel like shit. Yeah. Good. Good for you. Um, because you're going to end up with whatever you settle for. So, okay. Next, uh, message is from Nathaniel. Hey, when you putting Colin Beaven on the show already? He's a good dude. No idea who Colin Beaven is. So that's an easy one. Uh, and if you sent me an email talking about Colin Beaven and I spaced it out, I'm sorry. Uh, maybe send me another one or something. When people recommend guests, often they're just like, hey, you should get Russell Brand on your show. Um, it's like, thank you for that, but I don't know Russell Brand. So, uh, what do you want me to do with that? Like, I can't just say, Hey, Russell, this guy says I should get you on my show. Um, you know, if you know the person that you're suggesting I have on the show, um, first check with them and see if they want to do this. Uh, and then you can put us in touch or talk about why you think they'd be a good fit for the show or whatever. Um, I'm, I'm much more uh, likely to respond to that 
than someone who's just like, hey, get so-and-so on your show. Like, you know, you're just dumping a bunch of work on my lap here. Uh, I got to research this person, figure out who they are, figure out if if I want to have them on the show, then then reach out to them, see if they want to be on the show. And it's like, eh, you know, if, if you really think it should happen, uh, you can do some of the legwork, at least talk to them and, and see if they actually want to do this, and uh, then we can consider it. Okay, this is from Thomas. Uh, when considering factors that make up your self-esteem or self-worth, how much value do you give to sex? And specifically, for lack of a better term, your skill at forming satisfying sexual relationships with women. Uh, I'm typically somebody who goes a long time between partners and I start to feel more and more like my life is worthless. Um, it's kind of like in the absence of sex, everything else becomes pointless. Uh, I'm not convinced I do any single worthwhile thing without subconsciously believing it will make me more attractive to women. Is this as unhealthy of an outlook as I think it is, or is it a brutal fact of biology that my life would be better if I was getting laid all the time? Um, do you think it's possible to rid yourself of the need for external validation? Boy, there are a lot of questions in this. I feel it feels like such a weakness. Every day I wonder if we place far too much value on sex and romantic love. If being a man means getting the girl, I'm not doing a great job. I'm a 30 year old guy with an otherwise great life. Um, yeah, so Thomas. The first thing that comes to mind is that you may be conflating sex with intimacy. And they're not the same thing. And it's a common error, in my opinion, to conflate those two things. Um, you know, you can have a lot of sex in your life and still have a totally empty, meaningless life. It will have more of a certain kind of pleasure uh, than otherwise, but that doesn't mean anything ultimately. So I suspect that what you're really asking about here is relationship and intimacy. And what you're really missing is someone to share your life with. And uh, I don't think that's silly. I don't think it's um, a mistake or a sign of weakness to feel that way. And you're right. I, I At 30, I felt that way a lot. Uh, I still do. Um, you know, life is better when you're sharing it. And um, it's hard because you know, you can be sharing your life with someone that you really love and then you don't stop loving them, but you do stop sharing. And um, that's excruciating, but that's the price of admission. Um, so uh, I think that, you know, what you're asking about here is totally legit. 
I don't think life would be better if you were getting laid all the time. I think life might be better if you were sharing your life with someone who loved you and knew you and, um, and you know, who you could love. You know, it's interesting. Being loved in some ways is harder than loving. Um, it's like receiving a gift. Receiving a gift can be really hard. Uh, it's something a lot of people need to learn to do. I certainly did. Um, and being loved, like actually being loved, is really difficult. Um, because to allow someone to love you requires that you allow them to see you. And if you allow them to see you, then you're giving them... Uh, the power to reject you and to reject you on a profound, deeply hurtful um, level because what they're rejecting is really you. Um, I think a lot of people refuse to let their partners or potential partners see them because they're terrified of that level of rejection. Um. You know, if I lie to you about who I am and then you decide you'd rather be with someone else, then I can console myself by saying, well, she didn't really know me anyway. Um, and I think a lot of us go through life carrying that armor, that separation. And, you know, we avoid that rejection, but we end up living lives that are impoverished. And we suffer for the lack of intimacy. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, do I think it's possible to rid yourself of the need for external validation? It feels like such a weakness. I, I don't, I mean, I think you might reframe it a little, that it's not about external validation so much as it's about wanting to have love be present in your life. And um, I don't think there's anything the least bit wrong with that. I think that's a a very natural, um, very healthy desire. And when it's not there, its absence can be ex excruciating. Um, so, I mean, I don't know you, Thomas, uh, but you say... You have an otherwise great life. You seem thoughtful. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that uh, you're framing this as about sex might be part of the problem. Whereas if you framed it about companionship, love, intimacy um, in your own head, that might be a lot easier because this isn't about like, Hey, look at me. You know, I'm with the hot chick at the bar. At least I hope it's not. If that's what it's about, then yeah, you, then you're at a, a relatively immature stage of development, which is a stage of development that, you know, a lot of women recognize right away and find unattractive. So you want to move beyond that. But if you are where I think you are, then it's like, I'm just, I've got a great life and I just want someone to love. And that's a good 
impulse. Um, you should be careful about it. You know, I've said before on this podcast, I, I think that there are three components of a relationship. There's attraction, which includes sexual chemistry. Um, there's love, like, do I love this person? And there is compatibility. And I think that we are taught to miss, um, misvalue these things. We're taught to think that love is incredibly rare. It's not. To me, love is the most plentiful. If you spend enough time with anyone, really, you'll come to love them in some way. So when I was young, when I was 30, I thought love. So I was with a woman and I loved her and the sex was great, but we were totally incompatible. I didn't understand that. I was like, come on, the sex is great. I love her. We got to make this work. And we kept trying and trying and failing and failing. And uh, it was because I didn't understand that third component, compatibility is the rare one. Compatibility is crucial, much more than love or, well, sex. I don't know. The, the, the attraction, I think, is important. But that's a deep thing. That's not just like, do I like her body? You know, I'm into blonde. She's blonde. Like, it's not about that. It's about, like, do you gel as people? Is there, like, a resonance that the vibration is something you both feel? Um, and I think the more you can get away from conventional standards of beauty, the easier it becomes to recognize those sort of energetic components. But compatibility is really important. You know, do you like the same kind of food? Do you have the same kind of friends? Do you like her friends? If you don't like her friends, ugh, that's going to be hard, man. Um, does she have good taste in music? Do you both like to travel or both don't want to travel? What about kids? Like those sorts of issues are really important. But because we're misinformed about the rare, the scarcity of love, I think we tend to like ignore those questions like, ah, I love her. She loves me. Boom. That's enough. It's not enough. Um, and it's not rare. I hope I have addressed that in some way. Uh, Sam Squatch says... Chris, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on smartphones and how they've changed the way we interact and perceive reality. Yeah. Uh, I'm a teacher of young people, extremely concerned about the effect these technologies have on life. I'm only 32, but I remember a childhood of being bored and making my own friends. Yeah, dude, I wrote about this uh, a bit in Civilized to Death. And, um, yeah, I think it's bad news. I think it's really bad news. I think, um, you know, there's plenty of evidence showing that um, childhood rates of depression, suicide, uh, self-harming behavior, um, feelings of social isolation, all these things just started going off the fucking rails uh, with the first generation that grew up with smartphones. And... You know, even calling them smartphones, like they're smart. Yeah, they're, we should call them pocket parasites. Um, they suck your attention. They suck away your friendships. They suck away your life spirit. 
Um, I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting there having a conversation with someone and they pull out their phone and start going through their phone and I just get up and walk away. I'm done. No. Uh Uh-uh. So, yeah, uh, I think they're very problematic. And, uh, you know, social media designed to, to parasitize our attention, um, is a real problem. It's a problem even for me. I'm, I'm 59, right? I was in my thirties before the internet even started. And I was in my forties when, you know, social media and shit took off. So I had a huge advantage in terms of, uh, you know, my brain forming in the absence of these things. And I still get sucked into them sometimes. Um, one thing that I think is good is, you know, you're starting to see things like, uh, you can set your phone to alert you when you've used Instagram for 15 minutes or, um, you know, these sort of self monitoring, um, technologies, which I think are excellent and very important. So hopefully there's a, you know, an awareness of the insidious qualities of, uh, some of these technologies that's growing and people will start to protect themselves uh, from them. But, um, you know, it's hard when it's you against 500 engineers and psychologists who work at Google all conspiring uh, against you. Um, But that's the world we live in. You know, we've got um, advertisements for food that will kill you. We've got, uh, you know, all sorts of technologies um, designed to normalize things that should never be normal. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's a hostile world in a way that, uh, you know, in, at least from my perspective, the natural world was never hostile in this sense. Um, you know, everyone talks about how nature is so cruel. I think the marketplace is... Much crueler. Okay, Cole. uh, I got out of a six-year relationship a little over a year ago. We started dating when we were 18 and broke up when we were 24. I'm now 25 years old. We ultimately grew up to be different people with different interests. I would hide parts of myself from her and would deny parts of my inner workings in order to make the relationship work. The past year I've been exploring and working on myself. Uh, I see a therapist. I do a Zen practice. Now I feel authentic with myself. I've grown a lot and feel pretty good about who I am. Great. Now I'm thinking about starting to date again. Yes. I have concerns that I will lose touch with my authentic self in a relationship. Things can get very confusing. My questions are, how do you remain authentic in a relationship and how can you tell if a relationship is promoting authenticity and intimacy versus when you should leave? Really important questions. Um, really important. I see people all around me, uh, all different ages, who have never figured this one out. And it's a disaster. Um I see people getting pulled into relationships where they are pretending 
where, where they're doing exactly what you described, Cole, where they are hiding parts of themselves, downplaying parts of themselves, ignoring parts of the other person that they can see perfectly, um, but that would make the relationship problematic in order to make it work. And the problem is it doesn't work. That doesn't work. That's like, you know, it's like ignoring the flat tire on your car because you really want to get to where you're going. You you can ignore the tire, but you're not going to get there. You have a much better chance of getting there if you stop the car and get out and fucking fix the tire. Um, but I see, but people do this all the time. And, you know, I've concluded that it's just that so many of us grow up um, seeing really unhealthy relationship models uh, in in our parents and, and other adults that we sort of take these things as normal. You know, I wrote about this in Sex at Dawn with when a man loves a woman, he'll sleep out in the rain. He'll spend his very last time. So th- this is like, that's what love is. Love is when you're so desperate, you're so insane that you will bargain away your dignity and your honor and your self-respect in order to, you know, please this woman. I mean, no wonder people are fucked up, right? Every breath you take, you belong to me. That's a love song. That's not a love song. That's a stalker song. Um, You know, but that's what we see. I mean, in the 50s, it was totally normal in in films and uh tv shows for you know men to slap women in the face shut up you know like there was a show called the honeymooners with jackie gleason i always fucking hated that show and he was always threatening to punch his wife i'm gonna knock you to the moon alice fuck that was normal right so no wonder people are getting beat up at home domestic abuse was through the fucking roof um the culture is pathological in so many ways and teaching young people how to have healthy relationships is certainly one of them um so anyway i think what you're doing is awesome you you know you're in therapy you're talking about your shit you're figuring yourself out you're meditating you're feeling authentic with yourself and so on so now as you get back into dating you you are recognizing before you even get there that there are going to be conflicting agendas right like (laughs) you're going to have these moments where you're going to be sitting there across the table from someone who's hot and you want to fuck her and she's going to say something that is fucking offensive or ridiculous. And you are going to have to think like, now do I respond to that or do I just let that slide? And the thing is, you need to be really ruthlessly honest with yourself before you can be honest with other people. And I think 
that this relates to something that I have talked about in a couple recent podcasts. This, this, like, understanding a relationship for what it is, right? Is this a friend who you're going to have sex with? Is that what you want this to be? Is this a potential partner? Are you just so lonely that you'll take anything? Um, is your understanding of where this relationship could go similar to her understanding? Um, are you going to let her think it could be something else because you suspect that she won't have sex with you if she doesn't think that's where it's going, even though you know that's not where it's going? These things all come up. And my experience is that trying to finesse those things weakens you because you know you're not being legit. It causes pain for her or him. I don't know if you're gay, whatever, for the other person. Uh, and it it just increases the amount of bullshit in the world. In my experience, when I came to the end of the road of trying to finesse those things, and I sort of looked at myself and said, "Dude, you gotta, you gotta be honest. You gotta really, really be honest." Um, I thought that I would have much. I, I thought that I would basically be alone the rest of my life, that no woman would want to be with me because I was laying the shit out and I was not going to negotiate because I had negotiated a few times and I ended up in relationships that didn't work for me. But by then I'd been in them for a few years and I loved the person and then extracting myself from that relationship with someone I loved uh, was very, very difficult and painful and so I got to a point where I was like, okay, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm going to be totally upfront about who I am and what I need and you know what I'm into and all that. And that's going to eliminate everyone. Who the fuck's going to want to deal with me? Uh, I found it was the opposite. I found that what happened was, yes, some women were like, okay, sorry, that's not what I'm into. Great. But so many women were like, damn, dude, you're you're a man. You're not some boy who's playing a game, trying to maneuver me. You're a fucking man. And that's that's what I was. And, and now I look at it and, the, yeah, that's essentially what it was. That I was saying, like, look, this is me. Take it or leave it. I'm not changing. These are my boundaries. This is what I'm willing to do. This is what I'm not willing to do. Now you tell me, who are you? And we'll figure it out if it's going to work, if it's not going to work, whatever. When you reach that point, you have to be willing to sacrifice to reach that point. Because to, to really be that honest, I think, requires you to say, like, fuck, I have no idea what the cost of this is going to be, but I don't care. I'll pay it. Because the cost of not being myself in a relationship, truly myself, is higher. Um, and it is. 
So you have to be willing to make that sacrifice. But as I said, in my experience, when you take that step and you become, you inhabit your authentic self and you are not willing to adjust and bend and shade and edit and uh, obscure in order to be in a relationship, what actually ends up happening is you have far, far more opportunities and the opportunities are with people who are far more interesting and compatible with you. And you end up not wasting your time with people that ultimately you don't really want to share your life with anyway. And that's not a judgment of them. I mean, there are a lot of really, there are a lot of women in the world who are fucking awesome, gorgeous. I totally would love to have sex with them and be with them and smell them. and But I don't want to share my life with them. I don't I don't even necessarily want to share a weekend with them. And that's just the way it is. It's not they're not bad people. They're not it's it's not a, a judgment. It's just compatibility. And vice versa. There are a lot of women who think I'm a fucking awesome dude, but they don't want to share their lives with me. Um you know, and I ran into that a fair bit in my 20s and 30s and and when I did, you know, in my 20s anyway, I kind of was like, geez, like you don't even want to give it a shot and the woman, I'm thinking of this one woman in particular who was just like, dude, the life you want to live, awesome. Sounds great. But it's not the life I want to live. I want to get married, have kids, have a nice house, make a bunch of money. That's the life I want to live. And I was like, well, you know, let's uh, hang out because she was hot and I was 26 or something. Um, and she's just like, no, nah, not going to waste my time. You're great. It's not about you. You're awesome. But that's not the life I want. So why bother? Now I look at that woman. And I think, yeah, yeah, she had it figured out. She was right. It's kind of cold, kind of ruthless, but she was right. Um, and I wish I had figured that out earlier myself. So, yeah, the thing, you know, how can you tell if a relationship is promoting authenticity and intimacy? You can tell because you feel it, because you're more yourself in the presence of that person, that you're not hiding shit, you're not lying, Uh, you feel seen. You can be totally naked with that person and feel safe. That's how you know. That's real. You're growing. And he or she is growing as well because you see them. You see that person and you say, okay, that's cool. I like what I see. I accept what I see. That's scary as fuck, but that's intimacy. That's real intimacy. And if you're having dinner with someone, or you're having a conversation with someone, and you you can feel that if you are were really honest that it would turn them off, then that's when you make the decision. Am I going to be totally honest and turn them off, risk turning them off and turning them away and, you know, having them leave? Or am I going to start adjusting? And man, once you start adjusting, you never stop. And then you end up living someone else's life. It's not your life anymore. So 
good luck with that, Cole. Let us know how you're doing. I think you're going to just just be willing be willing to lose, be willing to be alone. That's the thing. You know, any negotiation, you have to be willing to say, well, it's not going to work, right? If you go into a negotiation saying, I need to have this, then you're going to lose the negotiation, whatever it is, a job, a piece of property, a relationship, whatever. You need to be willing to say, like, I don't need this, right? I don't need it. I'm fine. I'm happy. I'm good with myself. So anything that takes me away from this relationship with myself, not into it. I'm into something that brings me closer to myself, closer to the the heart of my intimacy with myself. And some people can help you with that. And some people are going to distract you from that. So, you know, you need to be, you need, you need to have empty hands to pick something up. So, uh, have your non-negotiables, you know, write them down. Maybe before you start dating, what are your non-negotiables for me? No kids travel a life that's about quality and meaning and relationship more than it's about money and status and any of that stuff. More about inner beauty than surface beauty. Those are non-negotiables for me. So if I met a woman, if I was dating and I met a woman and she was just the most beautiful, amazing, desirable woman I'd ever seen in my life, but she doesn't like travel and she is about money and she doesn't like spicy food and she's got bad taste in music, forget it. I don't care how gorgeous she is. I'm not going there. Uh, okay. Last one. This is from Cassia. Hey, Chris. I wonder what your thoughts on donating to causes are. I've become interested in effective altruism and considering donating a portion of my income to a cause. Years ago, I used to believe in God, and I donated 10% of my income to a church. I guess I have fallen out of love with donating because a lot of my money's gone to causes I no longer believe in. But I'd like to do something good with my life and the resources I have. Yeah, well, I don't know about effective altruism. Um, I think I understand the, the concept uh, and I see that you link to givewell.org, which is an organization that, that researches um, uh, other organizations and, and sort of tells you how legit they are. I, I think it's great to, to give. Uh, I give at least 10% of whatever I earn on this podcast to various organizations and individuals. Um, I tend to do more individuals. Um, you know, I I know people who, and we all know people who could use some help. And uh, I guess for me, it's a little bit easier because when I pay for something or or do something, I just say like, "Hey, it's a business expense. Don't worry about it. It's." You know, it's, it's podcast money. It just falls from the sky. And it sort of makes it easier for the person to accept 
um, if it's someone I know. Um, I also like I, I hand handfuls of money to homeless people. Um, I always have in my in both my vehicles. I've got a like a thing right near the driver's uh, side on the door that's just full of ones. And anytime I pull up at a red light or something and there's a guy or a woman standing there, you know, asking for money, I just hand them a bunch of money. Um, I think that's pretty effective. Uh, you know, maybe they go and they buy a bottle of booze with it. I don't know. But does it really matter? Um, they're having a rough time. And sometimes just the act of acknowledging them and saying, hey, you know, here's a few bucks, you know you know, hey, I hope things get better, you know, like that's invaluable. Um, I used to give money, I think it was called Kiva.org. I'm not sure I have that name right. But it's an interesting um, organization because what you do with them is like you, you put in, let's say 500 bucks and you, there are all these, you can choose what part of the world you want to focus on or or what particular type of business or whatever but their stuff will be like you know here's this woman in guatemala and um you know she wants to buy a few chickens so then she can sell eggs at the market so it's kind of like a you know a startup thing and you can like put 500 bucks or a thousand bucks or whatever you have into Kiva and then say, okay, I want to give a hundred bucks to her. And then I want to give 150 bucks to these people in Nigeria who are trying to start a car wash and I want to do this. And then what happens is they're like microloans and the people get the money. They do what they're saying they're going to do. They buy the chickens or start the business or whatever. And then they pay the loan back. The money goes back to your account and then you can invest it in something else. And they've got all the different, um, uh, they've got research on the different people. They've got people in country uh, who, you know, review the different, um, the people who are asking for money. And uh, so, and, and like what the likelihood of them paying it back is and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. It's called Kiva. K-I-V-A, um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's got an 83% score on this first, this charity navigator that I just looked at. Uh, so it's a pretty, scores pretty high on accountability and transparency. The overhead is quite low, so you're not paying a bunch of people who are like kind of, you know, making money running the thing. Um and uh, yeah, so the, I I think I put a thousand bucks into that a few years ago, and then I just got like I didn't have time to go in and recycle the money and and monitor things and see what's happening. So I just gave it on to my sister, and she handles it. Um, so I think that's a, a good organization. I think in general, micro loans are very effective because it helps people, you know, start a little business and then they can keep it rolling from there. It's like, you know, teach a man to fish rather than give him a fish kind of thing. Um, So that's my advice. Look into things like that. Sounds like you're already on the way. Um, And of course, support your favorite podcasters. Yeah. 
Thank you, Kasia and, uh, and Cole and Sam Squatch and Thomas and uh, Shannon and I guess Nathaniel as well. Why not? Thank you as well for listening to this. And if you're watching it, thank you for your financial support of the podcast. If you can't afford to do this, uh, if you're tapped out, that's totally cool. You can support the podcast by writing a review, telling your friends, uh, sending out positive energy into the universe. All those things are most appreciated. You can also use the Amazon affiliate link on my website if you use Amazon and uh, a percentage of whatever you spend will get kicked back toward me. Thank you, everybody. It's been uh, almost an hour and I'm going to I'm going to leave it there. If you'd like to see this, like I said, just go become a supporter of the podcast. Subscribe on my website, tangentiallyspeaking.com, thatchrisryan.com, and, uh, and you'll see the videos for this. Thanks, everybody. Hope you're good. Bye.